Only the victim is alive and the murderers are not. It's a pity you didn't know when you started your game of murder that I was playing too. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? First simply disappears, the other two died. Hello, hello, my pretties. It's your criminal researcher and non-destructive Canadian cult leader, Ashley Lana. Beer cult, how are you doing? I hope you're doing great because I've climbed some mountains. I feel rejuvenated, rejuvenated mountain goat, ready to go, and I'm ready to dissect another case. But first, a little housekeeping. I want to let you guys know that I was just a guest on the Team TNA podcast. TNA meaning Tyler and Eric, not tits and ass. Huge sigh of relief. And... I wasn't the only guest. They had Smugs Bunny on as well, who's an artist who's like, I would say he's a comedic artist. He's probably listening to this going, oh, oh, you. I think he is. I think he's great. I love them all. So we basically spent an hour purposely playing games to make each other laugh, but we were not allowed to laugh. You remember the show Silent Library? Basically, yeah, the one who laughs the most loses. And each of us had bets. Well, mostly Eric had bets on all of us. And if I lost, then Eric would host an introduction to my podcast. So if you want to find out if it will be his voice saying, hello, hello, my pretties next week and just blowing you all out of earplug oblivion, then you should head over after listening to this episode, after listening to my podcast, <laughs> head over and listen to the Team TNA show. It'll be their most recent episode, and you can hear Silent Library featuring yours truly. But we, the Fear Cults, are here for true crime and history. So, with that being said, welcome to Lullaby. Last episode, we examined the ogre of Santa Cruz, the co ed killer the six foot seven beast himself, Edmund Kemper. Awesome feedback from that episode. Fear called, I love you. Please share the episode and tag lullaby. This week, I'm examining a Canadian case that isn't quite commonly known worldwide. And it's proving that some of the most terrifying stories are not out in the open world. So get comfortable because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of robbery, crimes against children, mental illness, culture, and murder. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Where are you, ma'am? Calm down. What's going on? Some people broke into our house. Okay, okay. So it's all his money. Okay, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. Okay, ma'am, ma'am. Where are you? Two, three, eight, what? Avenue. Two, three, eight, Avenue Road. Yes. Can you spell the, the name for me, please? Dad? Ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. Hello. Hello. Ma'am, I need to know your address. Avenue Row, can you please spell it? 238 Avenue, 238 Helen 
what happened to my dad just went outside screaming. Ma'am, can you spell the street address for me, please? H-E-L-E-N. I'm broken and I heard shots like pop. I don't know what's happening. I'm tied upstairs. And my, I think my dad went outside and he's screaming. Okay, you're upstairs? You think someone's still in the house? I, I, I heard them leave. I don't know if they're still around. Okay, are you safe? From, can you lock your door? Are you upstairs? I can't. I'm tied. My hands are tied. You're tied? I had my cell phone in my pocket. Someone invaded your home, ma'am? Yes. And you I heard gunshots? They had guns and they were holding me at gunpoint. Okay. Do your mom anywhere downstairs? Do you think your mom's outside too? Sorry. Do you think your mom is downstairs too, still, or is? I don't hear her anymore. Okay, just take a deep breath, okay? Do you know if you believe? Do you know that if they know your parents, anything like that, was on your relation to them? Do they? Do they? I don't think so. They just they just came and tied you up and. They came in and they were like, "Where's oh, all your money? Where's your money? Where's your wallet?" And they. They were asking you for money. Did you call my uncle and my aunt? Okay. Your Don't worry, okay? We have lots of help on the way, okay? What's your name? My name is Jennifer. Jennifer? Okay, Jennifer. You're doing a great job, okay? Uh, I hear them. You hear them? Okay, just stand up only till you see them, okay? Uh, Jennifer? Jennifer? Yeah. You're still on the phone, right? Okay. Do you, do you see anyone there? Yeah, I hear them. Hello? This is the horrific true story of the home invasion of the Pan family. In the present day, Vietnam is a country of remarkable beauty, with its stunning landscapes, bustling cities, and vibrant culture. However, it's essential to understand the historical context of 1979, when political changes had a profound impact on the lives of its citizens. During that time, Vietnam experienced significant shifts in its political landscape, including the aftermath of the Vietnam War and the rise of communism. These changes brought about economic challenges. They limited personal freedoms and a sense of uncertainty for many Vietnamese people. Faced with these circumstances, a considerable number of citizens made the difficult decision to leave their homeland behind and seek better opportunities and a more secure future in different countries across the globe. It was in 1979 that a young woman named Bic Ha and a young man named Han, two young Vietnamese citizens, made the courageous decision to flee from their home country and seek refuge in Canada. They were driven by concerns about political instability and limited economic opportunities and personal safety. As political refugees, they faced the challenges of leaving behind their familiar lives and embarking on a new lifestyle in a foreign land. Their paths would soon cross in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where they would meet and were soon married. Both Bika and Han began working at Magna International, an auto parts manufacturing company in Aurora, Ontario, located roughly an hour away from Toronto. Han worked as a dye maker and Bika manufactured vehicle parts. And on June 17, 1986, the couple welcomed a baby girl they named Jennifer. And soon after, in 1989, they welcomed a baby boy named Felix. In the early days, the Pan family was known for their polite and peaceful nature. They always prioritized maintaining a respectful environment within their home. They instilled these values into their children, Jennifer and Felix. From a young age, they were to strive for their dreams and never give up by all means necessary. At just four years old, Jennifer displayed remarkable academic talent, surpassing expectations in all her kindergarten classes. Recognizing her potential, her parents enrolled her in various extracurricular activities, 
including piano and figure skating. Her skills were impeccable, and Jennifer was on track to partake in the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver for Team Canada. She trained every day after school until 10 p.m., a dream Jennifer would chase enthusiastically. Regrettably, Jennifer's aspirations of participating in competitions came to an abrupt halt when she suffered a torn knee ligament and had to stop. In school, both Pan children flourished. From elementary school and into high school, both Jennifer and Felix thrived socially and academically. They excelled in their studies and maintained an impressive A-plus average while actively participating in various after-school activities. Jennifer enjoyed swimming and practicing martial arts. Their parents, Han and Bika, wanted both their children, Jennifer and Felix, to become doctors to secure a successful future. It was known that Jennifer had a weak stomach, so her father was happy if she went to school for pharmacology at the University of Toronto upon finishing high school. Bika and Han were driven by their own difficult experiences in Vietnam and were proud and demanded maximum effort from their children. They pushed Jennifer and Felix to work hard, wanting to ensure that they would never have to endure the hardships that they faced back in Vietnam. This tiger-like parenting behavior is characterized by high expectations and pushing children for excellence. It's quite common within the Asian community. Both Bika and Han believed in instilling the strong work ethic and determination at a young age into their children. They believed that this would lead them to success and overcome any obstacles they might encounter into adulthood. By the early 2000s, Jennifer was in grade eight and on track to be the valedictorian for her graduating class at Mary Ward Catholic Junior High School. Both Jennifer and her family were expecting her to win multiple awards for her perfect grades, her attendance, and extracurricular efforts. But to Jennifer's heartbreak, none of those awards or recognition was given to her. As her family watched another student receive the title of valedictorian, they watched Jennifer's heart break. Her family told Jennifer that they were still very proud of her and she should be too. Her mother, Bika, noticed that Jennifer was still sad after the weeks progressed, and she would comfort her daughter when her husband, Han, was asleep, saying, quote, You know, all we want from you is just do your best. Just do what you can. The Pan family continued being supportive to their children, who had both grown into social butterflies. Jennifer specifically was known for her infectious high-pitched laughter. She mixed with everyone, and everyone liked her. She loved playing piano, and she secretly wanted to pursue becoming a part-time piano teacher when she graduated. Music was Jennifer's creative outlet, and in the school's band where she played the flute, she made many friends with her talents. Despite her previous disappointment in grade eight, Jennifer continued to achieve honors into high school. She maintained her extracurricular activities and told her parents that she was finally over her dark phase and was now motivated more than ever. In 2003, in grade 11, Jennifer's band class had the opportunity to take a two-week school trip to Europe. Her band class got to perform at a concert hall. However, the presence of smokers triggered an asthma attack for Jennifer. Overwhelmed with panic, she was guided outside to the tour bus where she nearly lost consciousness. In that critical moment, her friend Daniel Wong stepped in and helped her calm down, providing guidance on her breathing. Jennifer later expressed her gratitude, acknowledging that he had essentially saved her life. It was in that moment that their bond grew stronger. And in that summer, they began dating. Daniel Wong was described as the happy, handsome, and gregarious goofball, who had a wide smile and a little paunch around his waistline. He was a year above Jennifer, and he played the trumpet in the school band. And outside of school, he was in the marching band. Jennifer's parents didn't allow her to date, so she had to keep it a secret, because her main focus was to be on her grades to get into the University of Toronto. Daniel was accepted into the York University of Toronto after he graduated where he began taking a degree in engineering. 
He was also working as a kitchen manager at the local Boston Pizza sports bar and restaurant. The year of 2004 marked a significant milestone for the Pan family, as it brought about a series of exciting events. Jennifer, having successfully completed high school, was granted early acceptance into Ryerson University. Filled with enthusiasm, she eagerly enrolled in the Bachelor of Science program, with the intention of utilizing her credits to later transfer into the esteemed pharmacology program at the University of Toronto in 2006. Despite the challenges of their circumstances, Jennifer and Daniel managed to maintain their relationship in secrecy. Both longed for the day when they can openly express their love, understanding that once they both established successful careers, Jennifer's parents would be more accepting. Jennifer's parents desired a stable future for their daughter and always envisioned her marrying a reliable man and starting a family. Until that time arrived, Jennifer and Daniel contently continued their clandestine meetings as she still resided with her parents who provided her with financial support. Jennifer began teaching piano lessons from home and she was working part-time at Eastside Mario's to support herself. And it was also in 2004 when the Pan family was robbed in their Scarborough neighborhood. After years of living a frugal lifestyle, the Pan family made the decision to move from the suburb of Scarborough to the upper middle-class community of Markham after the threatening invasion. The quiet residential Markham community held a special appeal for the Pans. One of the main reasons Markham stood out was because of its reputation as being predominantly an Asian community, with many of the residents being Chinese, South Asian, and of Filipino descent. This cultural diversity and the presence of a thriving Asian community resonated with the Pan family as it allowed them to feel a sense of familiarity and connection with their own heritage. This new environment aligned with their own values of respect, kindness, and peacefulness. It provided them with a sense of belonging and a supportive community that embraced their cultural heritage. The Pans actively participated in community events and fostered positive relationships with their neighbors. The large home where the Pans lived was close to family and friends. The family used their savings to enjoy a comfortable lifestyle and this included buying themselves luxury vehicles for their hard work over the years. Bika drove a Lexus, while her husband Han drove a Mercedes. In 2006, 20-year-old Jennifer Pan graduated Ryerson University with a bachelor's degree in science. Her grades allowed her to transfer into the University of Toronto that fall with a $3,000 scholarship. Her father Han was so proud that he went out and bought her a brand new laptop for her studies. The next three years flew by for Jennifer, she graduated in 2008 and was faced with one of the many difficult choices life throws at a person. The graduating university class was so big that the university could only allow one ticket per student for the ceremony. Jennifer told her parents that she could never choose between them and she said that she was going to bring her best friend instead. Her parents understood and happily told her to take lots of photos so they could frame them along their walls. After graduation, Jennifer was offered a position at the Children's Hospital in Toronto to perform blood tests on patients. Her parents, Han and Bika, were thrilled to see their daughter's life finally beginning. In 2008, Bika lost her job at Magna International due to cutbacks. Despite this setback, the Pan family remained resilient and managed their finances and investments carefully, allowing them to accumulate over $200,000 in savings by 2010. With Bika not working, this resulted in tension between the parents. Not long after, the parents were sleeping in separate beds and 22-year-old Jennifer and 20-year-old Felix found themselves often being the mediators between the parents during arguments. While still in 2008, after five years of being together, Jennifer's parents discovered her relationship with Daniel. They witnessed a tender moment between the two of them at Pacific Mall in Toronto. 
Jennifer's mother, Bika, decided to sit down with her daughter and have the sex talk, reminding her that one wrong decision could ruin her plans forever. When Jennifer asked if she could bring Daniel home to meet her parents, they agreed. However, immediately upon meeting Daniel, her father Han disapproved due to his mixed race of being Filipino and Chinese. Reluctantly, Jennifer and Daniel decided to respect their parents' wishes and they ended their relationship. Throughout 2009, Jennifer and Daniel's communication dwindled with rare contact between them. When they would talk, the two would discuss how their lives were going and Daniel even expressed how he had begun seeing a girl named Christine. Of course, Jennifer was initially heartbroken but ultimately was happy that Daniel was able to be in a relationship and not have to hide it. She knew that one day she could share the same feeling with a person. Christine, however, was not happy that Daniel had not completely cut off ties with his ex-girlfriend, Jennifer, but that never stopped Daniel from checking up on his friend. Soon after, their lives took a terrifying turn when both Jennifer and Daniel started receiving threatening calls and text messages. Daniel became the target of relentless calls, receiving up to 100 each night from an unknown caller. Jennifer, too, was experiencing fear as she and Daniel received the text containing unsettling words like ha-ha and bang-bang. Daniel's concern grew, not only for his own safety, but also for the well-being of his terrified mother, who was unable to sleep at night. Jennifer began to suspect that she and her parents were being targeted by something far more sinister. One evening, Jennifer found herself alone at home when the doorbell unexpectedly rang. Opening the door, Jennifer was greeted by a man posing as a police officer. Initially, Jennifer assumed it was just a routine check, but her instincts quickly kicked in. Soon, multiple men stormed her house and forcefully locked the door behind them. Jennifer then became the victim of a gang-related sexual assault. During the assault, the perpetrators issued a warning, threatening to harm her and her family if she dared speak a word about this attack. Jennifer knew that deep down, the orchestrator behind this heinous act was Daniel's jealous girlfriend, Christine. Fearing for her family's safety, Jennifer remained silent, keeping the traumatic incident to herself, hoping that the worst was over. November 8, 2010, started like any other ordinary day for the Pan household. Han left for work while his wife, Bika, ran some errands, which included visiting her elderly father. Bika returned home at 3 p.m. and had a conversation with Jennifer, who had spent all day practicing piano and studying music theory. Later, when her father arrived home at 4.30, they all sat down for dinner together, and Bika got dressed and headed out for her weekly line dancing session at 7.30 p.m., one of her favorite hobbies. Meanwhile, Han stayed busy on the upstairs computer, and Jennifer occupied herself in her bedroom, watching Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8 and chatting with her friends. When 9.30 p.m. rolled around, Bika returned home and bid Jennifer goodnight, who was still engrossed in her TV shows. Bika then said goodnight to her husband, who was reading the newspaper in his upstairs study before heading to bed. Jennifer's brother Felix wasn't home that night, as he had been studying at McMaster University. Bika's feet were tired after line dancing, so she proceeded to soak them in front of the downstairs television on the main floor. Little did the family know that at 11.05 p.m., three intruders were caught on the security camera entering the front door of their house. Jennifer, who had been in her bedroom on the phone with her friend Andrew, abruptly ended the call when she was startled by her mother's panicked shouts for her father, Han. The fear in her mother's voice alerted Jennifer that something was terribly wrong. Her mother's cries were drowned out by the aggressive demands of the intruders, who were shouting at her to reveal the location of their money. Jennifer quickly lowered the volume of her television and remained silent, feeling as though time had come to a complete standstill. Once she heard the intruders ascending the stairs, 
she discreetly slipped her phone into the back pocket of her yoga pants and cautiously approached her bedroom door. As she peered through the crack, she was immediately confronted by a menacing man who forcefully pushed her into her bedroom. He warned her that he had a gun, and if everyone cooperated, no harm would come to them. The intruder stole $2,500 from Jennifer and then tied her hands behind her back with a shoelace. The man then led Jennifer downstairs to her mother and father, who had been sitting on the couch with their hands behind their backs. The main floor was shrouded in darkness, with only the faint glow of the refrigerator providing any light. Jennifer watched in shock as her parents struggled to comprehend the intruder's demands. The intruders couldn't understand their thick Vietnamese accents. Jennifer had to translate for her mother, relaying the intruder's words. After two of the men ransacked the upper floor, desperately searching for the money while continuously demanding its whereabouts, Jennifer was then taken upstairs because she had a better command of English. But she had no idea where her father's wallet was amidst the chaos left behind by the robbers. They were able to find $1,100 in American money in her mother's nightstand, and then one of the robbers tied Jennifer to the banister with her hands behind her back. The three intruders were of African-American descent and forcefully dragged Bika and Han down to the basement at gunpoint, ordering them to remain silent. From her vantage point upstairs, all Jennifer could hear was her mother's desperate cries asking about where her daughter was. Overwhelmed with fear, Jennifer sobbed uncontrollably, straining to catch any snippets of the conversation. She overheard one of the men accusing her parents of lying about the money, and then suddenly, two gunshots pierced the air, followed by her father's agonizing screams. Two more shots echoed through the house, and then the men hurriedly declared that they were out of time, fleeing the scene. 53-year-old Bika Han had been shot twice, once in the neck and once in the head, tragically losing her life. 56-year-old Han Pan had suffered two gunshot wounds, one to the shoulder and another directly to the face. It was now 11.20 p.m., and Jennifer, with great difficulty, managed to maneuver her body to retrieve her cell phone from her pants. In a state of hysteria, she dialed 911. 24-year-old Jennifer and her father Han were rushed to Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. Han Pan had been shot in the shoulder and face and miraculously survived. He was put into a drug-induced coma to protect his brain for neurosurgery. Luckily, Jennifer was cleared of any injuries. She sat next to her unconscious father for three hours before she was taken to Markham Station of the York Regional Police. She was to provide a witness statement, recalling the entire night. Jennifer was lucky to even be alive, and she was able to tell the investigators a detailed account of the home invasion. Jennifer described the three intruders as being of African-American descent, but she could only provide minimal descriptions due to her overwhelming fear at the time. Intruder number one, who Jennifer referred to as the leader, was the one who entered her bedroom and stole $2,500 and then tied her arms behind her back with a shoelace. He told her, quote, I have a gun behind my back. If you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where's the money? Show me where the money is and no one will get hurt. Intruder number two, according to Jennifer, had a long oval face and wore a dark hoodie. He never spoke the entire robbery and therefore Jennifer could not provide any further descriptions of his voice. Intruder number three spoke with a thick Caribbean accent and was the man who yelled at her parents that they had lied to them about the location of the money. So I watched all 11 hours of Jennifer Pan's interviews three times and I've got notes. So sit down for your call because you're about to get it. During the initial witness statement on November 9th, 2010, 
The investigators observed Jennifer as she recounted the events of the previous night, the night of the invasion, and they noticed a stark contrast in her emotional state and demeanor while describing different parts of the incident. For example, when she was discussing her mother being yelled at and ordered around by the intruders, Jennifer appeared visibly upset and distressed, and this makes sense. Less than four hours ago, three people broke into your house unexpectedly and held you and your parents at gunpoint and then murdered your mother and shot your father in the face. You would be devastated inside and trying to recall this to investigators, it would be all over the place. You would be un like gross, ugly tears. You would be in shock. However, her emotions seemed to shift as she would describe what happened to her mother. She would be just ugly tears. And then a question would be asked, cutting her off mid-sentence, and she would have to answer it. And her answer was immediately clear and composed as if the crying never even happened in the first place. Red flag when recounting events. Because from a scientific perspective, this discrepancy in Jennifer's emotional response and cognitive processing, this raises suspicions of potential ingenuity. Now, typically in traumatic situations, such as a home invasion and the murder of a loved one, the brain goes through what is called a state of shock and grief. So given that Jennifer was just giving her statement approximately four hours after the incident, her brain should still be processing this traumatic event, which would be leading to a more disorganized and emotionally charged recollection. But she isn't doing that. It's as if she's reading a laundry list. The only time there was light was when they opened the fridge door to see if they could find where my mom's purse was. One of the, the gentlemen asked my father if he had money in his wallet and where his wallet was. So they took me, because I was next to the stairwell, they took me up the stairs to sh show them where my father's wallet was, but I'm, I didn't know. They had turned the room upside down. I didn't know where his pants were at that time. One of the gentlemen... One of the gentlemen asked my father where his wallet was. That is a very polite term to be recounting a traumatic event where your mother got shot, died, and your father got shot in the face, and you got held at gunpoint. So to refer to these intruders as gentlemen? Por favor. So I'm going to play more examples as we continue, so stay tuned. This observation by the investigators, this suggests that the possibility of Jennifer not being genuine is high, and it indicates that she may be altering her emotions intentionally and presenting a more composed narrative, which raises questions about her knowledge of the incident. This is where it gets good. So as the initial interview continues, Jennifer has been confidently continuing her story, and her confidence all of a sudden shifts because she catches herself trying to explain how she was even able to make a 911 call with her arms tied behind her back to a banister. It was pointed out by JCS Criminal Psychology that Jennifer was a bumbling mess in her explanation, and she's saying a portion, and then all of a sudden she starts looking for approval from the detective as she continues. So I'm going to play that portion of the interrogation, and I want you to hear how she starts explaining something and then you can almost hear her pausing for a moment. And that's where she looks at the detective for approval. And once she sees his head nod, which he's doing intentionally as like continue, she takes it as, okay, he's believing my story. Now I can continue. I had my phone in my, in my, on me, behind me. 
that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I when I when they when I thought that they had heard them all leave and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called nine one one. But I, I still hadn't heard anything from my mom, and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, just moaning and making sounds. Now, in response to Jennifer's fishy emotional behavior during the first witness interview, after it comes to a conclusion, the investigators make the decision to conduct a second interview with Jennifer two days later. So authorities typically opt for the second interview when they are doubtful or suspicious about credibility of the initial statement. Investigators try very hard to avoid second interviews because they want to prevent further emotional trauma to the victims. So if Jennifer was up on her criminal justice and law game, she would have realized that even though she is still a witness and has only been read her witness rights at this point, she is technically an unofficial suspect just because of the second interview. And the investigators want her to think that she's in the clear because then they'll have a better rapport with her. Now, the second interview, it provides an opportunity for investigators to explore further into the details of the incident and assess any inconsistencies or discrepancies that may have arisen during the initial interview, but without confrontation. The purpose is to secretly cross-examine and find contradicting evidence that can be used against the person later, while seemingly it just, it acts as like they're just, oh, we're just clarifying events. We just want to make sure everything's all right. And you guys, I can't tell you how much I love this. I get so excited watching interrogation videos. Oh, it just, it just gets me going. And <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so exciting watching investigators just get them. I love it. I love it. Let me calm down. Three, two, one. All right. At 9 a.m. on November 11th, 2010, Jennifer begins conducting her second witness statement. Take that first interview that we had, which was, you know, hours after what, what had transpired, put it aside. It's almost like we've never spoken before, okay? So we're starting afresh. We're starting from new. That way you're not going to say, I think I already told him that. Don't worry about what you've already told him. We're going to see if we've learned or if you've remembered anything else. And there's some questions with respect to that uh, statement that I'm going to ask you about. Okay, but I'm going to let you start again and, and let's let's move forward from any time in that day where you want to start. If it's the time you woke up or if it's the time that your first interaction, it's your choice. Okay, I'm just, I'm very nervous and I why are you let's why are you, why are you nervous? Tell me about why you're nervous. Because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Oh, so because okay. that day was a lot. You're right. And I've been scattered and so bits and pieces are here and some pieces aren't here and I'm just... So I want you to sit back in your chair, okay? Just sit back in your chair, take a deep breath. Jennifer begins performing self-soothing techniques. Like she begins stroking her hands together, playing with her hair, and she even places her hand over her chest whenever she's trying to recall details that she made in her initial statement. So these behaviors, they help individuals regulate their emotions, and it helps create a self-sense of comfort during these moments of stress or anxiety. Engaging in a self-soothing action while recalling information, it can be a subconscious way for individuals to manage their emotional state and appear composed while they're being deceptive. However, it is very important to consider that there are other factors and they're accused when assessing truthfulness of someone's statements. Not everyone who self-soothes is lying. 
Jennifer self-soothing mixed with her emotional inconsistencies and story contradictions together they indicate that she is withholding quite a bit of information. The investigator has Jennifer recount the events of the night of the invasion and he has her start when she first heard the intruders break into the house. Jennifer recalls her mother yelling for her father in Vietnamese. When I play this next audio clip, you're going to hear her go uninterrupted in her already created monologue that she has clearly prepared beforehand, complete with fake emotions to seem believable. Then you will hear the investigator purposely interject mid-explanation to ask her a question. Now what this is doing, it's planning to break her acting, if she's acting, because her brain is not going to be able to actively answer the question she wasn't prepared and she hasn't prepared an answer for in the event that wasn't true. Meanwhile, she can't maintain the fake emotions of her acting. It's like a switch. Listen for it. She's calling him by his name and to come down. Okay, so give us verbatim what do you hear her saying? In Vietnamese. She's like, Hanoi, Song Day. And what does that translate to? Uh, that's my father's name, Han. Uh, come down here. Does she say anything else associated with that? With that? I can't hear clearly because, like, I was on the phone and the TV was on, but sure. that's what I heard. Is she yelling? Or is it uh, at normal? It's a loud, it's a, she's not yelling, but it's a loud tone. During her second interview, she retells the story without being interrupted, and she can easily recount the events, and she completely forgets to say that she was ever tied up in her bedroom, and that intruder number one brought her downstairs, hands untied. Her hands being bound are key. That is a key detail in her story. So the fact that she completely forgot to mention it at this time, red flag, waving, flailing high. When the investigator asks for clarity, he does it in a very calming way because he doesn't want her to be like, shit, they're onto me. She starts to panic. She catches herself and she tries to convince the detective that she had already told him that she was tied up in this interview when in fact she didn't. From where I was standing, my father was sitting on the right, and my mother was sitting on the left. Sitting where? On a couch. On our couch. Sitting on the couch. Are they looking out towards you? No, their backs are towards me. Okay. And you're now on the ground level? Are you on the floor? Or on the I'm sitting, sitting on, the, on the floor. I'm sitting on the floor. All right, where are your hands? They had tied my hands, so let's as go, I said. Let's go back up to the stairs. Remember we said, take the other statement and whatever we've said before. No, I, I said it earlier. Okay, then we must, let's let's get back to that area. I think you might have touched on it. We went back into the description. So where does you, where do you get your hands tied and where does the string come from? I'm not sure where the string comes from, but he had the string. Okay. And he, after I gave him my money, that's when he tied my hands. Next, we're going to discuss Jennifer's description of intruder number two. In her first statement, Jennifer stated that intruder number two never spoke the entire ordeal, that she only heard intruder number one, who had a Canadian accent, and number three, who had a Caribbean accent. When the investigator asked Jennifer to recount again each intruder and their role in the robbery, she fucks up, and she, you can hear the shift in her emotions as well. In her first story, intruder number two never spoke. In the second interview... He had pushed her back onto the couch. And she who kept, pushed her? Number two. Okay. He was pushing her back onto the couch. And she she kept saying, where's my purse? Where's my purse? And the guy kept telling her to sit down. And I didn't want my mom to get hurt. How many times does she get up and get pushed back down? 
I'd say she got up twice. Has number two uttered a word at this point in time? I can't remember hearing him. Okay. So we're just correcting what you said earlier because you said earlier that it was number two who was asking where the purse is, what are the purse is, and now you've said now it's number one guy who would I'm initially... Sorry. No, no, no. It's all a purpose. The purpose here is clarifying what you're saying. So number I one just is... Don't wanna... Number one is the one who's doing the talking about the purse. Number three is focused on your dad's wallet. Now of what he's wearing? Do you get a good look at number two now of what he's wearing? All I could tell was he had a vest and his face was like a long oval face. He had a vest? No, hoodie. Okay. A dark hoodie. The next contradiction Jennifer makes is probably my personal favorite. <laughs> the investigator is questioning her about how and when she was taken upstairs to her parents' bedroom to search for her father's wallet. In the first interview, Jennifer said that she seen the intruders take 1100 American dollars from her mother's nightstand and then another $60 was taken from her father's wallet. Did, did you see them recover anything inside your mom and dad's room? I did not see anything, no. Are you sure? Because uh, we would, when we spoke the last time, there was some mention of some other money that went missing. I believe when they were looking for my father's wallet, they had opened the drawer. And there was, uh, it was in an envelope. What drawer would that have been in? On my, on the, if you're in, at the door where we were standing on the left side, the bedside table. Whose side of the bed is it? That's my mother's side of the bed. And approximately how much money? I'm not sure how much she took out for our, our trip, but I can, I can only estimate about a few hundred dollars. A few hundred, because at the time, the last time or you told me, you were pretty adamant about, about $1,100. So I'm curious to know how you came up with that number. I believe it was when we were at the border we, and we stopped at the duty-free. My mother was deciding whether to use her U.S. currency or her, uh, her U.S. currency or her Canadian currency. So it was at that time you remember hearing $1,100? And that's what, is that the inference you're saying? Is that, because you're pretty solid saying that it was $1,100 that went missing, that was taken, and that you saw it when we spoke. And who took it? Who took possession of the money? I'm sorry. It's all right. By now, Jennifer is feeling the pressure because she is fucking up her stories left, right, and center. And the detective is doing what detectives do during the interview process, which at this time is rarely confronting the contradictions because they want the person to confess. And... Oh, sorry, my cat like creaked open the door and scared the hell out of me. Wicca, you're ruining the mood! I'm not even going to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, so the detectives want the person to run their mouth because leaving suspects to run their mouth at multiple periods, it just, confessions come out one way or another, and it's usually because of all the contradicting evidence. Jennifer is panicking. You see it all over her face, her body language, because she knows she's messed up, and only some of her inconsistencies have been brought to attention. She doesn't feel as though she is in control of her story anymore because the detective is giving her nothing on purpose. And after mentioning conflicting accounts, he's still giving her nothing. And she doesn't know what to do with this. Remember, she's not an official suspect at this point, and she has the right to leave whenever she wants. They are not holding her against her will, and she is not under arrest. The detective then moves to discuss the moment she was tied up to the banister upstairs and heard the three intruders leave in a hurry. He wants to understand how Jennifer was able to successfully retrieve her iPhone from her back pocket 
dial 911 and then speak clearly to the operator with her arms tied to the banister behind her back. And this is where Jennifer shows more emotion, trying not to stand up and show him how she did it versus when she was describing her parents being attacked. If she was able to perform this act of having her hands tied and calling 911, then she should have no issue showing the detective. But by Jennifer being extremely hesitant to do so, it reveals to the investigation that she might be hiding a little bit more. So Jennifer was able to prove that she made the call from behind her back, possibly indicating that she had the story straight before or that she wasn't sure if it was gonna be possible during demonstration to recreate it. Luckily, she was able to do so. The police who arrived at the scene, they did find her tied to the banister and she was on the 911 call, story good. But Jennifer loves running her mouth. So she's not done, there's more. Jennifer makes another statement that confuses the detective. Jennifer claims that she heard her father get up after the intruders left and slammed the front door. Once she heard her father moaning in pain, that's when she managed to call 911. But this is a lie because as you will hear in the 911 call that I'm about to play again, you can hear the moment in her voice when she realizes her father is alive. 238 Avenue Road. Yes. Do you spell the name for me, please? Dad? Good morning, I'm calling Ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. Hello? Hello? Yes? Ma'am, I need to know your address. Avenue Row, can you please spell it for me? 238 Avenue, 238 Helen Avenue. My dad just went outside screaming. Ma'am, can you spell the street address for me, please? H-E-L-E-N. The detective questioned how home invasions usually work and how they're usually not at random. He wondered why the Pan family was chosen. It seemed strange to him that if it were indeed a home invasion, why did the robbers leave the Mercedes-Benz and the Lexus when the keys were in plain sight in the home? Why didn't they carry backpacks? Or why didn't they even have zip ties? Why were they only using a mere shoelace? And most importantly, why would the intruders have shot two witnesses but leave one unharmed? Jennifer claimed that she was just as confused as he was, and she said that they told her that she cooperated and she still is wondering why they would have left her alive. The investigator mentioned that never at any point did Jennifer say that her parents were not cooperative, leading Jennifer to break down into fake tears into a tissue. And then later on, the investigator would go on to testify in court that all of the tissues that she used were dry as a bone. The detective then inquired about Daniel's alleged involvement in drug trafficking, as the police had reason to believe that he was still actively participating in dealing drugs. Jennifer adamantly denied any involvement with Daniel or his drug-related activities because, newsflash everyone, Daniel is a drug dealer. Jennifer said that the drugs were not her scene and it made her uncomfortable and that Daniel made sure that she was never around when he did any of his dealings. The detective informed Jennifer that the media was suggesting that the Pan family was the target of a drug vendetta. Jennifer, she was relieved to learn that Daniel had already been interviewed by police and provided a consistent statement affirming that she was not involved in drugs. However, when the detective mentioned the possibility of Daniel's new girlfriend, Christine, being involved, Jennifer was like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's gotta be her, she's gotta be a suspect. Unfortunately, the investigators, they did not find Jennifer's accusations credible and they remained skeptical. 
The detective finalized the last set of questioning by putting some pressure on Jennifer, unlike he has done before, and it shakes Jennifer's confidence. Like you didn't hear, you didn't hear a doorbell, you didn't hear a door knock, you didn't hear a door kicked in, you didn't. I was, I said I was watching TV on the phone. I, I don't know how. Yeah, I, I know. We went over that back and back and forth. We don't know how. So somehow they got into your house by getting through your mom down on the lower level, right? Because she's the only one who's down there. She's the only one down there. So it's very confusing. Generally, random events are not, in most cases, random. There's a rhyme or reason why they've come to your house. But from what you've told me inside the house, the only thing that you hear them saying to you is they're looking for money. They're not looking for a specific quantity of money? No. So you're telling me that you you had no involvement in what happened meaning not saying how the outcome came, but you you had no involvement in, in any type of illegal activity that would have drawn you or the attention of you to have bad people come to your house looking for large sums of money. You're not involved in this any which way because the question obviously stands, Jennifer, is you're upstairs and they're downstairs, right? So it's a natural concern when why would they leave you alone? Why would they not do the same to you? You can't answer that question? The only thing I can say is he said I cooperated. The, but I asked him to take me. The number Let's one guy? Out. The number one guy said you cooperated. Okay. Who's to say this whole thing isn't a lie? That what you're telling me is a lie? Because if you are lying, it's the most cold-blooded thing that I've ever faced in my life. There is nothing that you've said to me today is a lie. Now, back to another very difficult question. But if I don't ask it, I'm going to be, it's an obvious one. The resentment that you had, that you may have had towards your parents for the interference in your relationship and your life and essentially locking you down in your house. At the end of the day, I love my parents and I chose to be with them. And if I wanted to, I could have just left, but I didn't. I wanted to stay with them and take care of them. So this wasn't some evil plot that you thought up to? Oh my God, no. No interaction, no belief, no, you didn't have anything to do with this thing at all, whatsoever. No. You don't engage in illegal activity? No. Because you know that it'll be very easy, it, it will be a very easy thing to discredit you on, right? We're, we're in the process of trying to add credibility to what you tell us, and that's through the process of asking people and doing whatever. Through that same process, it will be very easy to find the flaws in what you've said, which again then turns the focus back to you. Okay. I don't. It's a natural progress. It's a natural thing that investigators do. We eliminate people, or we draw our attention to them. It's a natural uh, thing. It's a. It's not brain surgery. You can now hear Jennifer in fear mode, and she needs to try and gain control of how the detective perceives her. So she does the good old injured puppy routine. We're we're done essentially. <sighs> how are you feeling? Yeah, sorry, you should really scare me. Did I? What I scare you about? Sit down. Sit down and, and t- take a load off. Tell me how. Tell me how you're feeling, and how I scared you. I don't want you walking away from here thinking I'm evil. I want you to walking around from here thinking that this guy is helping investigate my mom's murder, and he's going to turn over every stone possible to make sure that we catch the people who do that. That's what I want you feeling. So I don't want you walking away from here thinking that I'm a, I'm, I scared you or I'm I'm a bad man. Sometimes we have to ask very very difficult questions, but it's my job. Okay, you're our only link, so we're we may rely on you heavily on until we can speak to your father. Okay, so don't be afraid. If you've told the truth, the last thing you should be afraid of is 
it's anything. If you've told the truth and you've been truthful through this whole process, then you're helping. You're doing your part. Okay? And don't be afraid of me. I'm just afraid because, you know, like, I know everything is just all pointing negatively right now. And I, I don't understand why. I'm just, I feel that, like, the way you're you're speaking to me, it's kind of like, I know you said that you had to say those things, but it's, yeah. it's here. And I've already said it to the special victims yesterday, but there's, like, ideas in my head. Yeah. And I'm afraid to say it out loud, but... Ideas about speculation of what happened, how it happened. Unfortunately, uh, at times, some of us have to point the finger, seem like we're pointing the finger, and it really is just to provoke you to see what you're going to do, how you're going to respond, okay? So it's only a question, and it ha it's been answered. And if you've been truthful, okay, you have nothing to fear, absolutely nothing. Oh, guys, this case is just starting. It's just starting. <laughs> so now Jennifer has been interviewed for just under two hours on November 11th, 2010. And at this point, the investigator wants to discuss her life leading up to the invasion. The slick purpose of this is to find a motive that could possibly have Jennifer being in the slot for being an official suspect. Jennifer has been building a report with a detective, and she starts to tell the truth about the lie that was her life story that all started 10 years prior when Jennifer was just 14 years old. Jennifer's web of lies began in the early 2000s as she fabricated her life to please her parents. The pressure to fulfill their dreams weighed heavily on her, and when she didn't become valedictorian in grade eight, her downward spiral began. Disappointed and overwhelmed, she hid her pain behind what she referred to as her happy facade, her happy mask. She began cutting herself and fell into a deep depression. Her grades slipped from the high 90s to the low 70s, jeopardizing any chances of her getting into the University of Toronto's pharmacology program. Fearing disappointment, she chose to forge a life of deception rather than seeking help. Jennifer began forging her report cards, using her old report cards, scissors, glue, and a photocopier she acquired, changing her low B and C average to her previous high A's. Her parents remained in the dark. Then, in the summer of 2003, Jennifer had secretly started dating Daniel Wong, the boy from her Mary Ward High School. Daniel was in grade 12. The two had been platonic friends for years, and Jennifer was aware of his shady dealings. Daniel was a drug dealer who was caught trafficking after being arrested for having half a pound of marijuana in his car. Daniel began falling behind in his classes at Mary Ward, so he had to transfer to Cardinal Carter Academy, an art school in New York. Meanwhile, Jennifer's academic struggles had taken a harder toll on her current mental health, plunging her further into a state of deep depression. She failed her final year of high school by flunking her calculus exam and shattered her confidence and left her feeling hopeless. If she ever planned on entering the University of Toronto, she needed to redo her calculus course, but she could not bear to tell her parents that she had failed high school. In a desperate attempt to escape the judgment she anticipated from her parents, Jennifer resorted to forging her high school diploma while hiding the truth about her academic downfall. Jennifer was open to her friends and Daniel about her situation, and they insisted that if she ever needed support, they were always there for her. Except Jennifer lied and exaggerated her claims about how her parents treated her. Although her parents did have high expectations for both her and Felix, she felt that she could never achieve those goals. She could not take accountability for it. 
Jennifer claimed that her parents had hired a private investigator to track her, which is why she had to keep up the charade for so long to her friends. Despite previously receiving an early acceptance to Ryerson University before she failed high school, the university withdrew their offer completely when she failed. Again, without her parents knowing, she told them that she would be attending Ryerson University that fall. She went as far as outlining a detailed plan, claiming that she intended to pursue two years of science at Ryerson before transferring to her father's desired pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. Jennifer's father, Han, was overjoyed by the supposed ambition. Jennifer was determined to maintain the facade. She collected used textbooks and school supplies to create the illusion of her commitment to her studies. She pretended to participate in orientation week activities and altered documents to falsely claim financial aid, receiving a provincial student loan from Ontario that she would never have to pay back. For two years, Jennifer pretended to attend classes, while secretly she spent her time at the public libraries, conducting online research and taking notes on specific topics that she could talk to her parents about. Not having a car of her own, Jennifer would get rides from her parents. Jennifer was able to convince her parents to let her stay at a friend's house three times a week. Her reasoning was so that her parents wouldn't have to make the hour drive from Markham to Toronto. But what her parents didn't know was that she was actually staying with Daniel and his parents three times a week. Jennifer was telling Daniel's parents that her parents were all right with it, and whenever they asked to meet them, she made up some excuse. Jennifer took on various jobs, including serving at Eastside Mario's, teaching piano lessons at her parents' house, and working as a bartender at Boston Pizza with Daniel part-time. To her parents, Han and Bika, their daughter was on the track to the perfect future. Karen Ho, a childhood friend of both Jennifer and Daniel, recounted to the Toronto Life, saying, quote, Her father Han was a classic tiger dad, and his wife Bika was the reluctant accomplice. They picked Jennifer up from school and at the end of the day monitored her extracurricular activities, and forbade her from attending dances, which Han considered unproductive. Parties were off limits and boyfriends verboten until after university. When Jennifer was permitted to attend a sleepover at a friend's house, Bika and Han dropped her off late at night and picked her up early the next morning. By age 22, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, visited a friend's house, or have even gone on vacation without her family. Presumably, their overprotectiveness was born out of love and concern. To Jennifer and her friends, however, it was tyranny. Other former classmates described the way Jennifer's parents treated her as being like shit for a long time. Karen Ho, being of Asian descent, went on to relate with Jennifer's upbringing, acknowledging that with her own parents being Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong, they expected greatness from her. Quote, My dad expected me to be the top of my class, especially in math and science, to always be obedient and to be exemplary in every way. He wanted a child who was like a trophy, something he could brag about. I suspected that the achievements of his siblings and their children made him feel insecure, and he wanted my accomplishments to match theirs. I felt like a hamster on a wheel, sprinting to meet some sort of expectation, solely determined by him that was always out of reach. Hugs were a rarity in my house, and birthday parties and gifts from Santa ceased around age nine. I was talented at math and figure skating, though my father almost never complimented me even when I excelled. He played down my educational achievements just like his parents had done with him, the prevailing theory in our culture of being flattery spoils ambition. In 2006, when Jennifer supposedly graduated Ryerson University with a bachelor's of science, Daniel had helped her acquire a fake diploma for $500 to show her parents. 
She built on her lie and explained that she was accepted into the University of Toronto, Faculty of Pharmacology, with a $3,000 scholarship. When it came time for graduation, Jennifer lied and told her parents that the overwhelming size of the graduating class made the university only be able to give out one ticket per family. Jennifer said that she couldn't possibly choose between her parents and would take a friend instead. Reluctantly, the parents accepted this. In September 2009, following the stage graduation, Jennifer informed her parents that she had been offered a volunteer position at the Toronto Children's Hospital, where she would be conducting blood tests. However, her parents grew suspicious when they realized that she never had an ID card or a uniform, both of which were mandatory for the position. In an attempt to uncover the truth, Jennifer's parents decided to drive her to the hospital and wait outside. Aware of her mother's watchful eyes, Jennifer entered the hospital, but instead of going to her supposed volunteer position, she quietly waited for hours in the emergency waiting room until her mother finally left. Growing increasingly suspicious, Jennifer's father decided to call her supposed friend Topaz, who Jennifer claimed to be staying with three times a week. To his surprise, the friend had completely forgotten about Jennifer's supposed visiting times and confirmed that she wasn't at her house. This revelation prompted the parents to confront Jennifer about her lies. Finally faced with the mounting pressure, Jennifer made the difficult decision to reveal at least a portion of the truth. Jennifer finally confessed that she had never been volunteering at the hospital for sick children and had never been enrolled at the University of Toronto for the past four years, despite claiming to be studying pharmacology. Shocked by this revelation, her parents also discovered that she had been living with Daniel and his family three days a week for the past four years. In response, Jennifer's parents demanded that she cut ties with Daniel and reapply to the University of Toronto, utilizing the credits that she supposedly earned from the Ryerson University. It was later revealed that Jennifer had lied about attending Ryerson as well. Han, Jennifer's father, initially wanted to kick her out of the house due to her deceit, but her mother, Bika, managed to convince him to let her stay. The continuous stream of lies began to take a toll on their relationship with their daughter. It didn't take long for Jennifer's parents to discover that she had even lied about graduating high school, leaving them even more devastated and betrayed. In an attempt to regain control and rebuild trust, they confiscated Jennifer's phone and laptop. They made Jennifer quit all of her jobs and only work as a piano teacher from home with a 9 p.m. curfew. Jennifer's mother occasionally let her use her cell phone when her father was gone and tried to remind her husband that Jennifer was an adult. But Han explained that as long as she lived under his house with his money, she had to obey his rules. Jennifer would later tell investigators that she could have left at any time, but chose her family, as family always comes first. Because sympathized with her 24-year-old daughter, understanding that she was a young woman, but her constant lying had pushed her parents over the limit, leading them to enforce stricter rules when it came to living under their roof. Eventually, Bika managed to convince her husband, Han, to grant Jennifer more freedom by extending her curfew and allowing her to use the family car. Yet her parents remained vigilant, closely monitoring the car's odometer. Her parents had believed that Jennifer had learned her lesson, and she began to retake her calculus course to obtain her high school diploma. Sadly, this was not the case. Jennifer began sneaking out to meet Daniel, continuing to deceive her parents and exploit the newfound privileges that she had regained. When questioned by investigators, Jennifer admitted that she never blamed her parents for imposing stricter rules, considering the web of lies that she had spun for over eight years. One event occurred when Bik Ha stumbled upon Jennifer's secret escapade while searching for her borrowed wallet. Jennifer had failed to return it before sneaking out, 
Bika attempted to wake Jennifer, only to discover a cleverly disguised arrangement of pillows hidden beneath the blankets. This discovery shattered any remaining trust her parents had for her, as they believed that she had ended her relationship with Daniel. In response, they once again revoked all of her privileges and imposed even stricter measures. From that point forward, Jennifer was forbidden to leave the house unless accompanied by one of her parents. And there, her parents had given her the ultimatum, choose Daniel or them. According to Jennifer, she chose her parents. Jennifer and Daniel attempted to hide their relationship, but Daniel grew weary of the constant need for secrecy. At 24 years old, Jennifer should have been able to assert herself and stand up to her parents, but she continued to rely heavily on them. Eventually, in February 2010, Daniel officially ended their relationship and began dating another girl named Christine. During the investigation, Jennifer admitted to lying to Daniel out of jealousy. She confessed to calling him obsessively and sending text messages that would scare him so she could get attention. Jennifer lied about receiving a bullet in the mail and even about being gang raped by a group of intruders. She tried to get Daniel to break up with Christine by saying that it was her who arranged the attack and the harassing calls and messages. She never told this to Daniel, only to detectives. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer reconnected with an old friend from elementary school, a man named Andrew Montemeyer. According to Jennifer's later court testimony, Andrew boasted about his past robberies at Knife Point in the nearby park, although he denied these claims. Jennifer and Andrew shared their tumultuous relationship that they had for their fathers. Andrew admitted to Jennifer that he even considered killing his own father at one point. Intrigued by the idea, Jennifer began envisioning a life free of her father's presence, realizing that if her parents were dead, she would inherit half a million dollars, and that could reel Daniel back into the relationship. Andrew introduced Jennifer to his roommate, a man named Ricardo Duncan. During their meetings in between Jennifer's piano lessons, they devised a plan for Ricardo to murder her father in the parking lot of his work. Ricardo would be the African-American male that Jennifer's uncle would see her with at the coffee shop and tell the police later. Jennifer claimed to have given Ricardo $1,500 of her earnings from piano classes as payment for the evil act. They agreed to finalize the details through phone conversations. However, Jennifer's hopes were shattered when Ricardo suddenly stopped answering her calls when he found out she was completely serious. By early July, she realized she had been conned out of her money. Ricardo then told a different story in court, stating that Jennifer called him in a hysterical state, pleading for him to come and kill her parents. Offended by her request, Ricardo insisted that he firmly declined, asserting that the only money he received from her was $200, which he promptly returned. Daniel and Jennifer, who had resumed their contact and engaged in flirtatious daily texting, decided to create a scheme involving hiring a hitman to eliminate Jennifer's parents, enabling them to claim the life insurance and live together without any interference. To facilitate their dark intentions, Daniel provided Jennifer with an extra iPhone and SIM card, connecting her with an individual named Lenford Crawford, also known as Homeboy. Jennifer, using her iPhone exclusively for criminal discussions, inquired about the cost of contract killing. Homeboy informed her that the usual rate was $20,000, but for a friend of Daniel's, he could arrange it for $10,000, $5,000 a head. $2,000 was to be given to Homeboy when they arrived at the Pan House as a down payment. The remaining $10,000 was to be paid out from the life insurance. Jennifer took precautions to keep her conversations related to the crime separate from her regular activities, using her Samsung phone for all other purposes. On October 31, 2010, Crawford visited the Markham neighborhood where the Pans lived, 
likely conducting surveillance to familiarize himself with the area. On November 2nd, Daniel texted Jennifer, revealing that he had developed strong feelings for Christine, reciprocating the intensity of Jennifer's emotions towards him. Jennifer, obviously upset, sent the following message to Daniel, quote, So you feel for her what I feel for you, then call it off with homeboy, end quote. Jennifer told Daniel that she wanted to call off the hit. In response, Daniel expressed his belief that Jennifer wanted this plan for herself, not for him. Jennifer clarified, stating that she did want it for herself, but had nowhere else to go. Daniel then suggested that Jennifer call off the arrangement with Homeboy herself, reminding her that she had initially expressed her desire for this plan to go with or without him. Over documented text, Jennifer reaffirmed her desire for the plan, emphasizing that she wanted it for herself. However, the following day, Daniel texted Jennifer, claiming that he had taken care of everything and lined it all up for her. It appeared that Daniel wanted to back out of the arrangement. Yet within hours, they fell back into their cold patterns of texting and flirting. Later that day, homeboy Crawford, the hired hitman, messaged Jennifer asking for the time of completion and urging her to think about her decision. Jennifer responded, stating that the current day was not suitable as she had dinner plans and would not be home in time. Over the following week, there was a flurry of text and phone conversations between Jennifer, Daniel, and homeboy Linford Crawford. On the fateful morning of November 8th, homeboy texted Jennifer, indicating that after work would be the designated time for the plan to be executed, referring to it as, quote, game time. At 9.35 p.m., Jennifer received a call from a man named David, who was a friend of homeboy's. They spoke for nearly two minutes, and when Jennifer went downstairs to bid her mother Bikha goodnight, she later admitted that she unlocked the front door, but then retracted the statement. At 10.02 p.m., the light in the upstairs study was switched on, allegedly serving as a signal for the intruders. The signal was also captured by the security camera across the street. A minute later, the light was switched off. At 10.05 p.m., David called Jennifer again, and they conversed for three and a half minutes. Shortly after, homeboy Crawford and his two accomplices, David, and a third individual named Eric Cardi, entered through the front door, each armed with a gun. That attack resulted in the murder of Bika Pan, and the near death of her husband, Han, who was shot in the face. Despite the surgeons being unable to remove the bullet fragments lodged in Han's face, a bullet grazed his artery, and he was suffering from a shattered neck bone and eye socket. Han defied doctors' expectations of reversible brain damage. After waking up from his induced coma on November 12th, Han remembered every detail of the night of the home invasion. Han's brother was allowed to sit at his bedside, where he described the events that have occurred so far. Her uncle mentioned that he had seen her at a local coffee shop with an African-American male. Later, when her uncle confronted her regarding the matter, Jennifer ignored the conversation, which raised red flags in the family and with investigators. Jennifer did not know that her father had awoke from his coma. However, the police would not allow Jennifer to speak to her father until they could gather his statement. The funeral for Jennifer's mother, Bika, was held on November 15, 2010 just days after the death of her father. It was believed by the Pan family that Big Ka's father died of grief at the news of his daughter's murder. Jennifer was heard complaining to her friends about her father leaving her and her brother Felix to arrange the funeral because he was in recovery. Police had Jennifer under surveillance at the funeral, reading her emotional state. She was seen more concerned about the police observing her than the death of her mother. On November 16, 2010, Jennifer's father, Han, privately provided his statement, contradicting Jennifer's version of events. 
He revealed that Jennifer was not bound the entire time as she had claimed in her interviews, and even had seemingly familiar conversations with the intruders. Han pleaded with the detectives to use their skills to uncover the truth and requested not to see his daughter. Given the circumstances surrounding the home invasion and the murder of 53-year-old Bikha Pan, the investigators were aware of the potential challenges they would face in court. The defense team could argue that Han's minor brain damage, resulting from the gunshot wounds, might have impacted his ability to recall events accurately. This could potentially lead to the dismissal of his testimony, that Jennifer was casually involved. A father's words against his daughters. Their tumultuous relationship could work in Jennifer's favor during the trial. Jennifer, unaware of her father's statement, was informed by police that she couldn't visit him at all. She sought guidance from the hospital's psychiatrist, who noted that her lack of concern for her father's condition or her mother's murder was unnerving. She instead focused on how the media portrayed her. On November 19, 2010, investigators had Han speak to Jennifer over the phone, pretending to have memory loss of the night. He subtly asked if she suspected her ex-boyfriend, Daniel Wong, to be involved, but Jennifer denied any involvement on his part. She then proceeded to ask her father for $1,200 for school tuition. Recognizing the need to strengthen their case, the officers understood the importance of obtaining a confession. A confession would provide solid evidence and bolster their chances of securing a conviction. On November 22, 2010, Jennifer was brought in for an interrogation. This time, she found herself in the hot seat as a suspect, rather than just a mere witness. Despite having her rights read to her, Jennifer remained oblivious to the fact that she was being treated as a person of interest. This lack of awareness could only be attributed to her unfamiliarity with the Canadian rights, as anyone well-versed in their legal entitlements would have recognized the significance of having their rights explicitly stated. A new detective was in place, a behavioral specialist named Detective William Goetz. He had used a different approach to acquire a motive for the crime. Knowing that she was involved in the home invasion, he was going to try and find out exactly why and get a confession. Oh, the behavioral detective in this case just shish kebobbed and obliterated her ass. <laughs> and I enjoyed every second of it because she deserved it. Caddy and Petty on my end? Absolutely. Because she killed her parents when she could have left at any minute. But I digress. So, this detective, he was phenomenal. He had his approach down pat. So the first detective who was in the initial two witness statements with Jennifer, he did a phenomenal job as well. He maintained the good cop technique and he found Jennifer's contradictions, which the next detective would use against Jennifer. The detective has read her rights. She is being held as a suspect and she is not being arrested. She has not said anything that could lead to an arrest which is why this detective is here. That's what his goal is, is to get a confession out of Jennifer Pan. He started by building trust with Jennifer for the first half hour, and he was going over her background. They discussed her skating. They had a sweet laugh. It was cute. He asks if she hadn't suffered her torn ligament, would she have been a professional competitive skater? She said yes. They bonded over their past. Typical rapport building techniques to make her feel secure. Then the detective subtly moves into trying to establish a motive without her catching on, and he succeeds. He asks Jennifer if her parents hadn't been so persistent with their wishes for her to become a pharmacist, he wanted to know what she would have chosen to be. 
without any influence, what did she want to do? And Jennifer responded exactly how he wanted her to. She, if she could have chosen, she would have been a piano teacher in the evening and worked as a lab technician during the day. So that's exactly what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear this because it reveals that Jennifer's career goals differed from that of her parents, what they expected of her. Modus operandi? Check. Hot take. So the detective, he further delves into the circumstances of Jennifer and what she faced as a child. So how she was living under controlling conditions and burdened by her parents' high expectations. It becomes evident that this unfair situation deprived Jennifer of a typical teenage experience. She wasn't allowed to go to parties. She wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend. And Jennifer explains how she lived with Daniel for a few days a week for two years while she attended... Ryerson University between 2004 and 2005. The detective is like, oh, this is really good. This is a good motive. Keep talking, Jennifer. And of course she does. Jennifer explains that her and Daniel kept the relationship secret for five years before they got caught by her mother because Daniel was dropping her off at the mall and they got caught smooching and her parents basically flipped biscuits when they found out that he was a mixed race of Chinese and Filipino. They had no idea that he was a drug dealer who had previously been arrested. Jennifer and Daniel, they broke up for a short period of time, but then they started seeing each other in secret again. The detective then asks if Jennifer felt as though she really had a choice when she was given the ultimatum between choosing between her family and Daniel. And Jennifer said, and I quote, there was no choice because family always comes first. And she will say this many times throughout all three interviews, that she made her own choices, that she chose her family over Daniel. Remember, she could have left at any time. And her father at one point even wanted to kick her out when he discovered the extent of her lies. But she chose to stay. And she chose to plan to kill her parents because she financially was supported by them. And... Oh, I'm just gonna, okay, I'm gonna get into it. I'm, I'm gonna get into it. <laughs> I get so excited. The detective then runs Jennifer through the events timeline, asking her about the night of the murder in not any specific order. He's jumping around a lot and he's doing this on purpose to make her mentally exhausted because if she's keeping up a charade, she's gonna mess up because as she's retelling these events, not in a particular order, things aren't going to add up and she's gonna contradict herself even more than she already has, making it easier for the confrontation that will come later. And Jennifer gets all emotional because it's working. She's feeling herself losing control over the interview because this detective is using a different technique than the other detective was. And all of a sudden she's going, oh my God, my fake crying isn't working. Newsflash, it wasn't working in the first two interviews, but he was using that against you. It's almost like FBI agents and detectives are trained to seek out deceit in interviews and interrogations. It's like that's what they went to school for. <laughs> Jennifer, get your shit together. Get it together, girl. Now the detective goes in for the jugular. Jennifer then lies to the detectives and claims that the entire invasion was a misunderstanding, that she did not hire a hit on her parents, but rather she had hired homeboy Crawford to kill her so she wouldn't have to commit suicide and bring shame on her family because she wanted it to look like a murder. Jennifer tries to convince the detective that there was a miscommunication and he ended up killing the parents. Another lie, obviously. And the detective calls her out on it. Now, do you think there's any reason why they tied you up and didn't tie your parents up? I don't know. Does that seem odd to you? 
Why does it seem odd? Because I was away um, up here separated from the local clients. And does it make sense that they would leave a witness behind if they were going to kill somebody? Does that make sense? Yes, I Just thinking about it. Would it make sense for somebody that was going to kill somebody to leave a witness behind that could describe them? Does that make common sense for killers? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Do you think that was a mistake they made then? I don't know. They kept saying that they were running out of time. It doesn't take a long time to kill someone. I know. I, I don't know. Look at me. Okay. What I do believe is that you went to somebody. And I do believe that night you paid them the $2,000. But what's not true is it was never for you. Okay. Jen, no. Okay. You went to this person and you asked them to do a job. And the job was for your parents. You asked them to do this job on your parents, Jen. Okay? Let's be truthful. Okay? Nobody's going to come there and get the wrong people. You made a specific request, and the job was for your mom and dad. Okay? Nobody's going to come in there and do the wrong job. Okay? Nobody's going to do that. They came, you paid, and they did what they were supposed to do. And the plan was for your parents. Me. Okay? Jen, you have to be honest with me. This is the only thing that's in contention here. Okay? You made the mistake, okay? Everybody understands. Everybody in this police department feels sorry for you. I can tell you that right now, okay? Because they've seen what you're going through. It's so obvious, okay? That all this tension they put out, basically this is like a volcano, all right? And at one point it was just too much and you erupted, okay? And you made a bad decision, okay? And once you hired this guy, there was no turning back. Now in the original story, you said that you hid your cell phone, okay? If it was for you, you wouldn't have hid your cell phone. That would have never happened. So it's in conflict. It's just, I, I put it there naturally. Okay. It's what I naturally did. Okay, but you said on tape that you hid it there and that they didn't know about it. That's your language, not mine, Jen. The detective says that they have infrared technology that allows them to see aerial views inside of a person's house to see basically thermal imaging if the person in the house is matching up with where they were located during her story. (laughs) Now, if I didn't know anything about any of this, I'd be shitting my pants too. And Jennifer is, she's, she's terrified. She is petrified in this video. The detective then looks at her straight in the face and says, Jennifer, look, I'm going to cut to the chase. I know you're involved. Every piece of evidence Witness statements, your conflicting accounts paint the crime perfectly. So stop trying to lie to us. I'm just trying to bring justice to your family and bring justice to your mother. Your mother deserves to be heard. The atrocities committed against her deserve to be heard. And Jennifer, yeah, she starts asking, but what's going to happen to me? What will happen to me? So this indicates to the detective that she will start to speak if she knows what's going to happen to her. Meanwhile, she doesn't really care about her mother and she doesn't care about her father. She just wants to know about herself. Now, the detective, he legally can't lie to her in this state by saying, oh, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you because then they're going to throw it out in court because it's going to be a misleading during the trial. 
they're they're just going to throw it out. So what the detective does is he says, honestly, I don't know what's going to happen to you because unless you tell me exactly what happened, I can't possibly predict anything. 10 out of 10, amazing cop work. So what does Jennifer do? Of course, she continues to lie to the investigator. She says that she did hire a hit on her parents, but miraculously, her relationship with her father had improved, so she called off the hit, but there was a misunderstanding, and homeboy Crawford showed up that fateful night because he wanted the cancellation fee, and he ended up killing her mother and shooting her father in the face. The detective flat up calls her out. He's like, your story is bullshit. (laughs) And she was arrested on the spot. He continues to talk to her, but as soon as this interrogation's over, she's cuffed. She admitted to putting a hit on her parents. You're done. You're donezo. And the rest of the interrogation, she is truly crying. Now, actually showing emotion because she knows that she screwed the pooch. And now you can just compare this actual feeling of getting caught to how she was crying with her mother when she was discussing the crimes. She is more concerned about her life, where she is going now that she is caught, than the crimes in general. It's disgusting. According to another detective on the case, Detective Cortese, he said the damning evidence was from Jennifer's cell phone, revealing that it was Daniel who reached out to Homeboy after Jennifer had persistently contacted him with 99 text messages and phone calls in a single day wanting to hire someone to specifically murder her parents. The next contact in Jennifer's phone records was a direct message from homeboy to Jennifer, and the phone logs played a crucial role in confirming Jennifer's guilt, and they were instrumental to the investigation that spanned over four years. And the detectives, they had to analyze over 700,000 lines of text messages, and they had to go through phone calls to uncover the evidence. Oh my goodness, could you imagine just being these detectives? My goodness, I actually think that the case would get really annoying after a while. Jennifer, you lying. Shut up. So the next significant text, dated November 8th, 2010, was sent by Homeboy, who was 28 years old at the time, and the text read, After work, I'll be available to hang out. And she finally confessed to hiring a hit on her parents, and boom, is going to trial. The trial began on March 19th, 2014 in Newmarket and was expected to last six months, but stretched for nearly 10. Over 50 witnesses testified and more than 200 exhibits were filed. Jennifer spent seven days on the stand, attempting to explain away incriminating text messages and phone calls, while desperately trying to convince the jury that her intentions had changed since ordering a hit on her father in August of 2010. Prior to the jury delivering the verdict on December 13th, 2014, Jennifer displayed a seemingly cheerful demeanor, casually removing lint from her lawyer's robes. However, when the guilty verdict was announced, she remained emotionless. It was only after the press had vacated the courtroom that she broke down, trembling uncontrollably. 27-year-old Jennifer Pan was sentenced to life in prison without a possibility of parole for 25 years for the charge of first-degree murder. Additionally, she received another life sentence to be served concurrently for the attempted murder of her father her ex-boyfriend, 28-year-old Daniel Wong, along with 34-year-old David Melvagnium and homeboy Lenford Crawford, were each handed the same sentence. Due to the illness of 25-year-old Eric Cardi's lawyer, 
Eric Cardi's trial was postponed until early 2016. The judge ordered two non-communication orders, one prohibiting communication among the five defendants until Eric Cardi's trial concluded. The second order, at the request of Jennifer's family, prevented her from ever speaking to her father or brother again. Jennifer's lawyer addressed in court stating, quote, Jennifer is willing to communicate with her family if they express a desire to do so. In his decision, Judge Kerry Boswell gave the maximum sentence for attempted murder because, quote, it was simply luck that her father, Han Pan, survived such a crime of terrifying violence. Each of the offenders knew that he or she was involved in a murder plot and was aware of the abject immorality of the plan. Jennifer's brother Felix testified at the trial and admitted that he too was tricked by his own sister. He didn't think that she could commit such a disgusting act against her own family. Since the trial, Felix Pan has kept a low profile and moved to the East Coast, where he still grieves for the loss of his beloved mother. Han Pan was unable to sell his house due to the crimes committed inside. He now lives with relatives and still mourns the death of his wife, Bika. As of May 2023, the Crown is seeking Canada's highest court intervention in the case of Jennifer Pan. The Ontario Court of Appeal has overturned her first-degree murder conviction, stating that the trial judge, Carrie Boswell, erred by not giving the jury a chance to select second-degree murder and manslaughter as the verdict in the killing of Jennifer's mother. The appeal court also upheld Jennifer's life sentence for the attempted murder of her father. The Crown has filed an application for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada to determine the correct decision. Legal experts believe that the case may not be ideal for the Supreme Court, as the principle of leaving options to the jury is well established. However, they acknowledge the challenges faced by the judges in complex cases such as this. If the Supreme Court of Canada chooses to hear the case, a decision may take a year or more. If leave to appeal is denied, the Crown can choose to proceed with a new trial or not. If no new trial is ordered, Jennifer and her co-accused can seek parole immediately on the attempted murder conviction. Presuming that those convicted will lose the retrial, they will be eligible for parole in 2035. Jennifer will be 49 years old, and Daniel will be 50. The complex case of Jennifer Pan and her family has left many in bewilderment that such a child could do such an atrocity to their family. In a perfect world, Jennifer would have had Daniel and the love of her family, but unfortunately, she couldn't have both, and she chose the extreme. In 2014, when Jennifer Pan took the stand at her trial, she stated, quote, I needed my family to be around me. I wanted them to accept me. I didn't want to live alone. I didn't want them to abandon me either. Jennifer's father, Han, was shattered by the loss of his wife. He shared his longing for Jennifer's redemption. Hindered by a persistent pain and haunted by nightmares, he remains unable to work or sell the tainted family home. Nevertheless, he still hopes that Jennifer will reflect upon the tragedy that befell their family and strive to become a better person. Han Pan said, quote, When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. On the day Bika died, I feel I died too. That is the horrific true story of Jennifer Pan, the girl who did not think she was good enough for her family and hired a hit on her parents. That situation is so sad. And hearing how many times during the interrogations that she said that she could have left, but she never did and then chose the direction that she did, I think it's disgusting. I, it's just so sad that it had to come to that. And I hope that her family can heal and 
Oh, it's hard. I truly hope the victims of this case, like our prayers are with you. Fear cult, we are with you. So the sources for this episode, I didn't say at the beginning of the episode because I didn't want to give the plot away. <laughs> so the sources for this episode are the novel A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi, Jennifer Pan, JCS, Psychology, the 11 hours of interrogation tapes, which consumed my life, plus the Toronto Life article written by Karen Ho, who was Jennifer and Daniel's high school friend. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. On our never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie, I am recommending one that I loved, but I will warn you, if you are not a horror movie person, and maybe, or even if you're easily emotionally affected by movies, then maybe don't watch this one. So it's meant to be provocative, and it definitely is. It stars Magneto himself, Michael Fassbender, hey, hey, hey. And the movie is the 2008 British horror thriller Eden Lake. The plot involves a young couple on a romantic weekend break at a remote lake house, but they are terrorized by a group of vicious delinquents, and that is putting it very mildly. <laughs> I can't express how much I hated these little rats. They're not even 18 years old. They're like 12 to 15 years old, and watching it, I was just, Ugh, I was so mad. So, I'm not, I don't want to give anything away, but I just want you to know that if you are left watching movies and you are affected by them, like hours after you've watched them, heed my warning. So please share Lullaby, like and rate five stars wherever you listen, and it truly helps support the podcast. The more you like, the more you share, the more it builds the community, and the more it's easy to find. So tell a friend about the podcast. Many new listeners reach out to me over social media and they tell me that they love the podcast, that they love learning about these cases and how much they feel for the victims. And that truly, truly grows my heart 10 times bigger because I'm doing this not to glorify crime, not at all. I'm doing it because people should learn patterns, see these things and be able to spread awareness and help the future. That's why we can't let these things be forgotten. Memories need to live on. So thank you for listening to this week's lullaby. I tried to scare you, now you try to scare me. Rate, review, follow on Instagram at Lullaby the Fear Podcast. So thank you for listening to this week's lullaby. Sweet dreams. Lights out. <laughs>